If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. And uh, as I mentioned last week, if you have uh, your scripture on a device, a phone, I'm a book person. I love the way books feel and smell, but uh, I also know sometimes it's easy to carry a phone or a tablet. Uh, Matthew chapter five is where we're gonna be. And uh, let me reiterate that uh, whether you're a book person or you like the online stuff, it's good to have a a good uh, online copy of the word of God that you can kind of have with you anyway. There are several really good Bible apps out there. I mentioned last week the Gideons have one. Uh, uh, Bible Gateway is another good one. They give you many different translations of the same word of God right there. Uh, instead of carrying you know, a big old bag of books around with you, you can just carry it on, a, on an iPad or a phone. I also want to mention, um, uh, you've heard Lewis mention several times over the last... Uh, as long as I've been here, so probably before that as well, uh, be sure to, to, to check in or, or, or like us on Facebook and follow what we're doing. Even on Sunday morning, it's okay to, to, to check in as part of the worship service. You know, I might say something that you want to put out there. I don't copyright what I say up here because I try as much as I can to copy somebody else's work or from the Bible. Um, so, so if there's something that comes up, if there's a song, man, if you're, if you're in a real worshipful mood, man, we were worshiping God with this, check in, let people know that it's an it's a easy online way to to invite people to come and be a part of what we're doing. Um, so we're in Matthew chapter five and, and, and I wanna tell you about, uh, about uh, David Wolf. He's a, he's a Sinai uh, temple rabbi out in Los Angeles. And last year in January, Time Magazine published an article that he wrote uh, that was doing some background research on an NBC and Esquire magazine uh, survey from November, 2015. And, and here's what the survey uh, showed that... Um, Americans are angry. People in America are, are angry. And, and, and what was even more stunning about it is over the 3,000 people that were surveyed and, and that, that were sampled from all over the nation, we're not talking about just like Southern Californians were the ones that were mad or, or New Yorkers or, or just people in Atlanta. This was all over. They sent the surveys all over the nation. And what we found, they found was that of the 3,000 people that were surveyed, the vast majority of them were angrier in 2015 than they were in 2014. We as a society are becoming angrier and angrier. So, so what makes you angry? Is it people that text while they're supposed to be driving and running into your lane? Is it people that cut you off in traffic? I mean, I know we live on the outskirts of Atlanta. We never get mad at traffic around here. That's, that's okay. We'll put that one behind us. Or, or, or maybe it's the on hold music when you call. Or just calling customer service in general makes you angry. Is it? going to the drive-thru and having to wait more than 38 seconds for your meal? (laughs) Is it the way your children talk back to you? It's never the way a husband talks to his wife. That never makes anybody angry. Or a wife to her husband. The truth is that we can all admit that there are times when we get angry. And so we've got to ask ourselves a couple of questions about the anger. Are we any better for being angry? Is our society any better today because we're getting angrier and angrier and angrier? See, a lot of this starts at your point of departure. What I mean by that is if you believe that things are going to get better and better and better and better and better, you will become angry when it does not. 
But if you understand what Jesus teaches about anger and what Jesus does with anger, we start walking into a different aspect of life and kind of realizing and checking what's going on inside here. Because I know you're asking, what does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe you're getting angry at me droning on about anger. And so let's go to Matthew 5. And if you found your place in scripture and you are able, I would like to invite you to stand as we read the word of God together. Starting in verse 21 of Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave the offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into the prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up to the last cent. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come into your presence looking at the words that you have given. For Lord, you are the eternal word of God, the firstborn of all creation, but you took on our form, our likeness, our flesh to show us the true heart of God. This morning, as we look at your word, may it not be that we point to someone else, but that we point to our own heart and let your spirit take over and move us to action that equates to life and godliness. Father, we love you. Lord Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this sanctuary now. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So we get into this passage of scripture and if you've missed the last couple of weeks, just kind of a recap of where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking about the authentic countercultural life that Jesus calls his followers to live. And so it started with some attitude and some mindset and then it went into what it means to be salt and light as we look at how we stop the decay around us and shine light of the glory of the gospel to those who are perishing and are in need. And, and then we dove in last week with, with this, this kind of whiplash of being called to a righteousness that surpassed the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and those were the extra super holy people. And so how are we supposed to be extra more super holy than they are? It's through the heart righteousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he transforms us and makes us new. That is the deeper righteousness. And so this morning, we're kind of starting a little bit of a mini-series. Uh, we, we, um, we sent our little newsletter out on Thursday. And if you got that on the email, you saw that I had a few things listed, just some ways you can impact church. And one of the things was to go ahead and read this passage. It's no secret to you where we're going to be next week. It's going to be the next few verses in Matthew chapter 5. Um, that's what we're going to be kind of systematic 
systematically going through week by week as we go. So I encourage you to read ahead and take some notes on some things. And if, if you did read ahead, you kind of see where Jesus is going to go in this passage of scripture a little bit. But if you didn't get that email, make sure you let Jenny or Joy know so they can add you to the weekly email list. Gives you a whole list of things that, that are going on. We're going to start putting uh, some of this stuff um, on our Facebook, like the little, the weekly thing that I'm going to send out in the newsletter. We'll start putting on our Facebook page. So go and like it, follow it and all that good stuff. Check into it, all the different things you can talk about Facebook. Do that so that you can kind of stay up to date with where we are on some of these. But Jesus is pulling us in and we're going to start a little six weeks mini series out of the Sermon on the Mount about some ethical things that Jesus addresses for his hearers. He's walked us through looking at, okay, this is who you're supposed to be. This is being salt and light and now have this deeper righteousness. And the natural question at the end of verse 20 is, how in the world do I do that? How do I have a deeper righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? What does this look like? So we have six sections where we're gonna talk about anger, we're gonna talk about lust, we're gonna talk about marriage, we're gonna talk about honesty, we're gonna talk about loving others where Jesus is doing one thing and one thing only. He's putting his finger into your heart, into my heart and saying, this is what it means. A deeper righteousness is heart-oriented righteousness that is affected by the change that the gospel brings in you and me. And maybe this morning, before we really dive into the meat of the message, the meat of the passage of scripture, you're asking yourself, well, how come I don't experience that? It could be because you've not come to faith in Christ. See, what we're gonna talk about, man, you can get some good pointers for how to live a happier, healthier life, but until the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, until you do what we Baptists say, give your heart to Jesus, until you do that, you don't have the heart transformation that the gospel requires. And that's where Jesus left us last week. Unless you have that, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. So this morning, let me ask you very point blank, if you are struggling there, to consider with me this morning that your sinfulness has left you outside of the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus Christ is offering you the righteousness you need by the death that he paid on the cross for you and for me. So so consider that this morning and and let the Holy Spirit rattle that around inside your your rib cage and your heart and and rattle it around in your mind and then we'll have an invitation at the end or you can catch Pastor Ben or Pastor Lewis or Pastor Paul uh, or one of your deacons or one of the men that are looking around looking extra super spiritual, you know, let those guys and we will walk you through the gospel to, to know. But Jesus now takes us into this whole idea of anger and murder, and Jesus starts in Matthew chapter five by addressing the undercurrent to murder. He addresses the undercurrent to murder. He says there in Matthew chapter five, verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. Jesus brings in the discussion of the Ten Commandments about committing murder. Now, you remember the Ten Commandments. Maybe you saw them on a courthouse one time when you were growing up. Maybe you had your mom had them posted in the dining room of your house. Maybe you saw them on the wall of a church. But we got these Ten Commandments. And let me just break the Ten Commandments down for you in two simple ways. It starts with who God is. Exodus chapter 20 says, hey, I'm the Lord, your God. And then it goes to this is how you live in response to me. This is what the Sermon of the Mount is. This is what it means to to know who Christ Jesus is and then how to live in response to it. So Jesus is pulling in some things about what it means to follow him in relation to who 
God is. That's, that's what it's about. How we live in relation to who God is. Our lives con Dios. That's what we want, our lives with God. And here he says, you have heard that the ancients were told. He goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the, the books of the law and says, you shall not commit murder. That's a pretty good law, isn't it? It's such a good law that every civilization uh, in the past, well, since the Ten Commandments were given, has kind of had a law similar to that. You shall not commit murder. Now, the word that he uses there is a word for the intentional taking of someone else's life. It's a premeditated, it is a hostility-based taking of someone's life. We kind of we uh, differentiate between that and the American legal system. We have homicide and we have manslaughter. Manslaughter is if you kill somebody, but it was kind of an accident. For example, you're driving down the road, you're minding your own business, and you look over here because somebody sent you a text message, and you look over here and you look up and there's a man standing there and you hit him. They will charge you with vehicular manslaughter. That means it wasn't intentional, you didn't really try to hit somebody, but you killed them. The other is that is, man, you've been out with your friends and you've had two, three, 12 beers and you've gotten behind the wheel of the car and you hit somebody, they're gonna charge you with vehicular homicide because even though you didn't get in the car thinking, I'm gonna run somebody down today, your actions premeditated a carelessness that was intentional. And so there's a difference between the intentional, the unintentional. And Jesus brings the law into it and says, look, you, don't murder. Don't intentionally go out seeking to kill someone. And then he draws it in a little closer. And look what he says in verse 22. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to the court. See, in addressing the undercurrent to murder, Jesus shows us and exposes that anger is a liability. Anger is a liability. See, liabilities are things that make you culpable. Liabilities are things that, that could bring you under a, a, a little bit tighter introspection to see whether or not it truly was up to you or not up to you. And he brings this anger in here and he says the same words. If you commit murder, you're liable to the court. If you're angry with your brother, you're liable that same court. Wait, wait a second. What do we do with that? What do we do with what Jesus is teaching us about anger? Because everyone in here, you don't have to raise your hand because if you don't raise your hand, you're lying to us in church. Everyone in here has been angry. Everybody. Are we all murderers? Wait, wait a second, didn't Jesus get angry? Didn't he the guy that was in there flipping tables over and driving people out of church and brandishing whips? Wasn't that Jesus? Didn't God have anger kindled against Israel and against the nations time and time again in the Old Testament? What do we do with that? That's where Jesus takes us. See, the word he uses for anger here is a very specific word. There are two types of anger that, that, that we could use. There, there's one that is kind of that, that initial response. It's, it's the Greek word themos. It's kind of that you stub your toe and you're angry about it. 
It's that somebody cuts you off in traffic and, and like it just kind of makes you boil for just a minute. It's, it's that you find out that, that someone has cheated you out of thousands of dollars in a Ponzi scheme and you're initially angry about it. But then there's another word. It's the word Jesus uses here. It's, it's orgizo. And this is kind of that blood-curdling, boiling, festering continuum. Jerome, one of the church fathers in the first century, said it this way. Simos is that incipient anger and displeasure that ferments in the mind. Orgis, however, is when Themos has subsided and is that which longs for revenge and desires to injure the one thought to have caused harm. There's a big difference there. That's why Paul can rightly tell us in the book of Ephesians, be angry, but do not sin. It is not a sin for you to have that moment of anger. Jesus is not addressing that. Jesus is addressing the, the kindling of the heart that goes on and burns against someone and burns and begins to plot and, and to, to, to start finding ways to inflict the harm and the judgment against someone because of what they did. And this is how Jesus exposes. Look at what Jesus is in exposing this liability. He shows us first that anger provides the motivation for action. Look at what he says in this passage of scripture. If you commit murder, you're liable to the court. Whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall also be guilty what Jesus is doing and using this particular word and bringing it into the understanding of our minds right now is that there is some motivation that is attached to this anger. That motivation is revenge. That motivation is taking it into our own hands. That motivation is making sure that that person feels what they did to us. And don't we do that on every level of relationship? Man, Marriages. I've talked with people that, have, that, that, that were struggling in their marriage and uh, they just kind of weren't getting along. And, and I know that's nobody in this room, but that just things weren't happening. And, and kind of in the conversation, you'd hear this, this terminology that like the husband was trying to punish the wife for how she made him feel. Or the wife was withholding love and affection in order to punish the husband for something that he said or, or didn't say or didn't do. That's this anger that Jesus is talking about. That's this anger that says, you know what? I'm going to hold your sin above your head as long as I can to get what I want. That, that's the motivation. That, that's the motivation. It's the, the plotting and, and the, the planning and the trying to figure out. But then Jesus says, this is what makes you liable to the court. And he goes on one step further and he says that anger produces a blind evaluation. Look here with me, if you will. He says, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. You, you worthless. You, you, you are not worth it. What Jesus is doing is he's using the Greek word here. Jesus didn't, wasn't speaking Greek, but the Greek word they use here is, is raka. And it's kind of like calling somebody a, a numbskull or a, a moron. Not, not moron, that's later. Uh, Empty-headed. He's pulling them into this understanding that what they're doing is elevating themselves. See, here, here's the blind evaluation. When, when somebody does something against you, aren't you more prone to focus on what they did and not what you're doing? Isn't it easier to focus on the action instead of the reaction? 
See, see what happens, what Jesus is doing here is that when, when you treat your fellow man that way, we're gonna go outside of the community of faith here. We'll, we'll draw it back into the church in just a second. We're gonna go outside of the community of faith and just talk about world relations, people around the country, around the state, around the city, around town that we deal with on a week in, week in, out basis, maybe even in your house. What happens here, and this is kind of what we teach our kids, right? People are more important than things. So, so you treat people with better respect, but Jesus says, when you get so angry, you forget that you've offended someone else. You forget that you have also done wrong and you play all the blame on someone else. That's a motivation of pride. That's a response of, I am too good for how you have done this. You are worthless because of how you treated me. That's, that's counter the gospel. That, that, that's against what Christ Jesus came and set forward to do for you and for me. We have the worth that he would die for us. And when he says, you look at someone and call them absolutely worthless, you have shown them that even the gospel might be too far from them. Why? Because only you're good enough to be saved. It's like the t-shirt says, you know, Jesus loves everybody, but I'm his favorite. Um, it, it's, that's, that's the mentality. We, we, we pull it in to, to how good we are and how offended that they would even think to do that. And so we get anger. We, we blindly evaluate the situation. We don't see the person as having the value. We look at the action against us. But Paul tells us in the book of Romans, um, consider others as more important and worth more honor than you yourself. That's the evaluation with spiritual eyes that looks and says, you know what? I understand this was a wrong and I understand that this happened, but I'm not holding it against you as a person. Let's work through the action together, which we're gonna come back to in just a minute. But then Jesus kind of spirals it down one more because Jesus isn't interested in just throwing out this blanket truth. He wants it to come and pierce our hearts so that we can see our, 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 our embedded need for him and what he alone can do in our lives. That's heart-oriented righteousness. But we're not gonna get past step one and step two unless our heart is connected to him by the Holy Spirit in our faith that his uh, atoning blood was good enough for us to receive what God alone could offer. He says here in verse 22, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough, guilty enough, to go into the fires of hell. Now, and I don't know about you, but when I read these words of Jesus, when I read just the face value of what Jesus just said to us, and it's easy to say, well, he was speaking a couple of thousand years ago. That doesn't really apply. Do you still say you fool today? Do, do we, the Greek word he used there is the Greek word more, not, not amore like Dean Martin and that's amore. We're talking, uh, for all the Rat Pack fellas out there, so we're, we're talking the Greek word more, which we get our English word moron. Moron. That, that's kind of a hard sell, right? We, we step back and we have to think for a second. Wait, wait a second. Why, why is Jesus starting with our anger? And, and why is he trying to correct whether or not we called somebody a rocker, you fool? And, and, 
And, and why is he even going as far as, well, I can't call anybody a moron anymore. We, we've lost something in translation over the years. See, that word that he's using there in the Greek mind was equivalent to telling uh, Charles Quarles, from professor of New Testament at New Orleans Seminary, says it this way. It's the equivalent of looking at someone and saying, you are so far unregenerate that the gospel will never touch you. Basically consigning them to hell. Now I want you to think about what Jesus has just done here. Now we, we might not think of calling someone a moron or an idiot or a numbskull in those terms, but what flashes across our mind and what we hear used so often in common modern day vernacular is some telling someone go to hell. And Jesus has just brought this into the forefront of our heart and our mind that it's not just the words, it's the attitude that we look at someone and say, your life's not even worth the blood of Christ because we're that angry. And what Jesus does is when you do that, you've actually just brought, levied the same punishment on yourself. Look at what he says. You who would look at your brother and say, you fool will be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Do, do you want that? I don't know anybody that real, realistically looks at that and says, you know what? I wanna call somebody a moron and then go to hell for it. But Jesus just looks at the motivation of our heart and says, look, even something to that degree where we would deny the opportunity for someone to hear the gospel as we present it, as we live it, and, and as we show it to the world around us, that we would deny them that opportunity based on how angry we are and how much we wanna keep this to ourselves and make sure that they know how bad they hurt us and that they know how much we lost because of what they did, that we would send them and consign them to eternity without Christ. Christ, then, then we've brought that back to ourselves. You see why this is such a different righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? You, you see why this is more than just, well, don't call somebody an idiot because it's impolite. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's Christ Jesus looking into the motivation of our heart and saying, look, you've got this anger streak that is so far removed from what the gospel is doing in your life and should be doing in your life and has done for you that we've got to have some serious questions about whether or not you truly are in the gospel or if you just know how to church things up a little. And so he asks us for this deeper righteousness. So, so what do we do with all this? And last week we talked about the two questions that we asked. What does it mean and what do we do with it? Here's what we do with it. That's what I love about this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts giving us some commands and then tells us how we, how, or starts teaching us on some of the Old Testament commands and then kind of shows us some, this is how it lives out. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering, therefore, at, before the altar and go. First be reconciled. Jesus is about to show us how to fix our relationships. Guess what? We all have broken relationships. You know why? Because we're all messed up. All of us. Some of us can make it look better and some of us can act like we're more put together than we really are. But every single one of us deep down has some sort of issue that impedes our ability to relate perfectly with everyone. Sometimes we're the guy cutting people off in traffic. So, sometimes we're the jerk on the, that end of it. It's not always the other guy. A lot of times it's us. 
And, and so Jesus realizes that and says, look, I, I made you. Don't, don't, don't forget, everything was made by Christ, who is the word of God, for the glory of God. And so Jesus, I, I made you. I was watching when your great, 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 great grandpa Adam ate that apple. I know the curse that was placed on you in sin. And I know that you can't relate perfectly to everybody. So guess what? Let me show you how you can fix those relationships. It starts husband and wives, take note. Parents and children, take note. Buddies, take note. Work associates, take note. Strangers, take note. It's amazing sometimes how much better our lives will function in accordance with others when we pay attention to what the word of God has said. And he uses a word called saying, be reconciled. This is how Jesus shows us to fi- how to fix our relationships. He pulls it into reconciliation. Why? Because reconciliation is what fixed our relationship with God. That's the basic function of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. I love what Paul says in the book of 1 Timothy. Jesus, this is a trustworthy statement. Jesus died to save sinners of which I am the worst. I am the foremost. That God saw fit to reconcile us to him. We didn't climb the ladder to God. We didn't pave the road to him. We didn't clear the way. He sent his son out of eternity, out of the kingdom, out of the, the realms of glory in heaven into our world. Why? To reconcile us, to fix the relationship. That's why the gospel is so important for us to apply to our heart right now as it pertains to how we live in relationship with others. If we're not being reconciled to one another, how can we ever hope for the world outside to trust the gospel of reconciliation that we preach? We've got to demonstrate it. So Jesus shows us here in this passage of scripture how we fix it. Verse 23, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled. Jesus just told us, and I'm gonna get some strange looks from people, stranger than I normally get, that reconciliation is better than church. It's more important than church. Wait a second. Isn't the whole purpose of what we do for everybody to come to church? It's for everybody to come to Christ. If they come through the church, great. If they come through our public witness, outstanding. But what we have to see is how the gospel works. Look at what Jesus says. This this is worship terminology. Let me break it down for you. Hey, if you're at church worshiping God and you realize that you are in strife and enmity with somebody else, your worship isn't going anywhere until you reconcile it. That's why he said, first be reconciled. See, in the old days, in those days, you had to bring your offering, your sacrifice to God. So, so you just picture a guy, he's walking up through there, he's got his bull and he's dragging along because the bull's not wanting to die. He's watching what's happening to these other bulls up here on the hill. So he's bringing it up there and he's singing all these super holy songs out of the Psalms and give us clean hands, give us a pure heart. And I want to enter into your presence. And he's singing all these as he's bringing the bull up. And as he's getting there, he's like, yeah, I made it. I'm in church. Wait a second. My neighbor's mad at me over a property line dispute that we've been having this week. If I'm going to present this bull as peace to God, I've got to have peace with my fellow man. 
So Jesus says, tie your bull up to the hitching post, get back home, be reconciled, and then bring your offering. How many of us come to church looking all spiritual and holy week in and week out while the relationships around us are in such distress and dismay? How many of us don't make it to church without breaking a relationship because we got kids in the back seat? Kids, we've been fussing that all morning. Get dressed, don't touch that, don't eat that. We, we, we do that, but we gotta get to the point where we realize that the gospel was to make peace between us and God and us and man. There is a, there is a what is this way? Is that horizontal? There's a horizontal aspect to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the cross here. Vertical, horizontal, God to man, man to man. There is a relationship that must be reconciled. And so he says, it's better than going to church. That doesn't mean don't come to church because then later the gospel tells us, hey, don't neglect gathering as is the habit of some. But when we're here to worship, may it be because we've been seeking peace elsewhere. Look what else he says about reconciliation. He tells us that reconciliation is a self-sacrificing action. Look in verse 23 and 24. He says, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember, catch those words. Notice the starting point of this. You're not waiting for the letter in the mail. You're not waiting for the angry text message. You're not waiting for somebody to quit following you on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. You, under the power of the Holy Spirit, as you enter into worship, you recognize the offense. You're not waiting on them to initiate. You are the one that is be the initiator. This is self-sacrifice. Remember that blind evaluation we talked about a little earlier? We wanna call somebody a fool or empty-headed because we want it to all be their fault. We want them to be the ones that are carrying the brunt of reconciliation. But what Jesus says is, when you know that there's an issue between you and your fellow man, you be the one to lay yourself down. You be the one to fall on the sword. You be the one. But wait a second. I, I've never been wrong, except for that one time I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't. I mean, that, that, that's the mentality that we want to carry. We, we, we're all okay, but instead the gospel says, you know what? If you're gonna come after me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And Jesus says here, this self-sacrifice oftentimes comes when you realize I've, I've messed up in some relationships and I'm gonna take it upon me to fix it. Why is that? Because we're not God. See, God is the only party at play here that could say, you're the one that messed up and I'm the one that's gonna make it right. When it comes to us, we gotta say, you know what? I'm the one that messed up and I'm going to make it right with you. Because that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. In your life and my life, as we step foot out of the corner of Broad and 23rd Malone into the world around us, whether we're going into Fulton County, into Fayette County, into Coweta County, into some other county, where we're going as their kids go to school and as we go to work to engage with the gospel. But then he says in verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way. Is that word make friends? I love this. Jesus is pointing out to us that reconciliation is personal. It, it's personal. When you broke the relationship with someone, that was a personal effect, meaning you take personal means to restore it. Men, men you'll understand this. 
you're having a conversation with your wife and in the conversation you know you're you're thinking literally and you're thinking all these things and 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 your wife looks at you and says you know does this dress make my hind end look big and, and you say to her well it's not the dress that makes your hind end look big you have now personally created a breach in your I have never said that to my wife by the way I want you all to know that you have personally created a breach in your relationship. And you know what's not going to make it right? Sending a letter from the office on company letterhead that says, dear lady, I am sorry that I hurt your feelings. No, it's gotta be something personal. Men, you know this, flowers, chocolate, uh, gift card to the place where you get massages. I mean, you know, you know the, the, the grob, not the groveling, but you know what you've got to do. Why? Because you created a personal breach. It's the same in our other relationships. Jesus says, make friends with your opponent. Go to them personally. Why? Because it's the person that has the ability to offer forgiveness. It's a personal action. And, and by the way, in case you don't know, when you say, when you go to make this reconciliation and you say, man, I, I'm really sorry, but you've just completely ended your apology. I'm sorry, but you know, you started it. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you interpreted my words that way, but if you had been listening, you would have known that I was meaning this. That, that just completely undoes the self-sacrifice. Go personally, one-on-one, -on -one, make it right. And then here's the fourth thing. Reconciliation is expected. It's expected. In case nobody told you, when you signed up to follow Christ Jesus, when you said yes to the Lord, when you said, I want the gospel, I want the salvation, I want the forgiveness, it wasn't just one of those, hey, here you go, put it on, and nothing's ever required of you. There are commands that we must follow even as we live under the freedom of Christ Jesus. And here's the command, be reconciled. Jesus would not put that in the imperative. Jesus would not put that in the command if it wasn't something that we were supposed to do one to another. Be reconciled. The gospel expects that we would live out the same reconciliation that he has offered to us. So you're sitting there thinking, man, I'd never murder anybody. I would never go out with the intent to kill. I, I would never do that. But now I'm seeing that maybe my anger has something to do with it. Maybe I'm seeing that my, my, my heart needs to, to shift and turn a little bit. You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit working the word of God into your life right now. That's the Holy Spirit growing you into Christ's likeness. We, man, we love Romans 8, 28. Those he foreknew, he predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of Christ. God from eternity past said, you know what? I'm gonna save people and I'm gonna make them like my son by whom I'm saving them. That's the goal. And right now the Holy Spirit's working in your heart and you're realizing, okay, no, I would not go out with the intent to kill. But, but I've got some work to do right in here that the Holy Spirit needs to enact and is already enacting. Let me offer you an opportunity to come and pray. Grab one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. Grab me, we'll pray together on how the Holy Spirit brings the, the fruit of spiritual maturity and growth into your life. 
Doesn't matter if you're upstairs or downstairs. Man, we got time. Make way. Maybe this morning you're wrestling with the whole notion of what it means to follow Christ and the appeal that was made earlier to this heart righteousness that's, that's required. And, and, and you're realizing that you need that regenerated heart that God alone can put within you with the Holy Spirit, man, it's like a packaged computer. It comes with all the preloaded programs. He gives you a heart. It's got his law. It's got his righteousness. It's got his spirit. And you need that today. Don't walk out of here without coming to faith in Christ Jesus. As we stand and have a time of invitation, whatever the spirit of God has placed on your heart, you come.